My friends all tease me because I use flip charts and everybody's going all modern and use slides and everything and they say, like Charlotte, the 1980s phone, they want their flip chart back. <laughs> I love a good flip chart. I don't trust technology because technology hates me. So I don't trust it. Uh, so I, I grew up in, in a little town in Northern Ireland called Portadown. I was born in another town called Ballymena where they all talk like that, hey, and that's if you came from Ballymena now, that's the way you'd be talking. I don't talk like that because I was only born there. And I moved to Portadown when I was a very little girl and I grew up in this little town called Portadown. Now, we didn't have much guys in Northern Ireland. There wasn't much crack, you know, there wasn't much, there wasn't much in the homes and the houses of, of, of those in the street that I lived in. So do you want to know what my favourite toy was growing up, all right? And maybe, maybe there'll be a wee weirdo in the room, who, a bit like me, who was also your favourite toy. My favourite toy growing up was a mirror. Now, before you think I'm very vain, I was not. Because this is what I used to do with my wee mirror, and I am so fascinated to know if I was the only one, right? I had a wee handheld mirror, it was a wee square, it was my mum's actually, I used to steal it, it wasn't even mine. This little mirror, and I used to walk, right, and I used to get the mirror, and I would hold it flat in the palm of my hand, okay, like that, with the mirror side facing up. And this is what I spent hours doing. I would hold it like this in front of me. And so it looked like the roof was the floor. <laughs> and then I would walk around and navigate the lights. And, and, and the wee edge, I was a very strange child, guys. I was a very strange child. And I absolutely loved that because I was in the very same place I'd been a million times, but it all looked new. It was in exactly the same location, but everything had been turned upside down. And I think when we look at the life of Jesus and his kingdom on earth, it feels a little bit like that. It's like exactly the same world for those of us who are his followers, but he turns everything upside down, doesn't he? And so we're navigating exactly the same space, but all of a sudden, because of the things that he said, everything feels upside down. Like Jesus comes in and makes these mad claims that, you know, the weak are strong. What? That's upside down. He says that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. What? That makes no sense. He, he says that the, 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 the people who are truly blessed are the poor and the meek. What? It's, it's like Jesus has got everything upside down. And sometimes we look at his words and we say, well, I just don't even understand how that can be true. How can the people who are, who are meek and poor, how can they really be blessed? And how can the last be first? And, and how can the hungry be filled? And how are the proud, you know, not the ones who are really exalted? Like, it makes no sense. Jesus, you've got this all upside down. Except, you know what I think? I think the world's upside down, and Jesus entered it, and he was the only one who was the right way up. <laughs> and so he discombobulated everybody. Because he was just walking with a different sphere, you know? Because the, the world is upside down and Jesus is the right way up. And the problem is for some of us, even though we follow Jesus for a really long time, we're impacted by the culture of the world around us. And those two cultures clash. The culture of the kingdom and the culture of the world, they clash. And sometimes it's really tempting to disagree with Jesus. Because if we're meek or poor or weak or last, we think, how can I be the greatest in your kingdom? The great ones in your kingdom are the ones who everybody looks up to, who everybody exalts, who everybody sees. Surely that's where greatness lies. Jesus, this makes no sense. And that's what a walk of faith is about. It's about believing that what Jesus says is true, even when it makes no sense. And when culture says the exact opposite. You see, Jesus is the right way up 
and the world is upside down. And when Jesus comes in, he doesn't just conflict with the world culture, he starts to change the culture around him. Because you see, Jesus didn't just come back, you know, Jesus didn't just come to earth to be born and until Jesus came to turn the world the right way up again. Jesus is restoring everything that got broken. This is, this is a story of redemption. He has come to put back all of the broken pieces and to flip a world that is upside down right way up. And he began that work and he entrusted that work to you and me who follow him. So we are also participants in this work of turning the world back right way up. And so what you're going to find throughout scripture and certainly one of the key themes in Esther is a story of reversal. That's what we're going to talk about in this session. It's a story, the story of scripture is a story of reversal. It's a story where Jesus comes in and he flips the script. So the script of the world is saying one thing and Jesus says, no, that's upside down. Let me turn that over for you. And it's how Jesus is constantly, consistently flipping the script and actually God right throughout the scriptural witness. It's a story of reversal. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're going to see it absolutely everywhere because it's every it's embedded in the story and so in the story of Esther one of the key themes that comes across is this story of reversal because all of the characters meet reversal in one way or another don't they like first of all we meet this girl Esther and we've talked a lot about her so far uh, and we've already talked but just to highlight to you again this young woman could not get lower down the social stratosphere if she tried the only way for her to mean less in society would have been for her to be dead. She was as low down the social stratosphere as it could be. She was a woman in a patriarchal society. She was an orphan in a society where family stability meant everything. And she was an exile in a country that was not her own. Every way that she could be minimized in her culture by a label, she had them all. And for that person, to then become the person who is the hero of the story. If you had met Esther at the start of the story, you would say, probably not her. I mean, Lord, if you're looking for a hero, probably not her, because she didn't have anything going for her according to cultural standards. But the Lord comes to flip the script, and the weak are the strong, and the last become the first, and the meek and the poor are actually the ones who have something to offer the world, not the strong. And so Jesus takes a hold, God takes a hold of Esther's life. And she, she goes through this massive reversal. And we've gone through the story. So you know that this woman who starts here at the bottom of the pile is going to be the very one that God uses to reverse the, the, the fortunes of an entire nation. Like, <laughs> It's just hilarious, isn't it? I, like, I find God so funny sometimes, the way that he moves. I'm just like, you're hilarious. This is ridiculous. The question I have to ask is how? How does that reversal come about? Because I don't know how you feel, but certainly I feel like I've got nothing to offer the world sometimes. I've felt that many, many times over in my life. I'll tell you a little bit about that later on in another session when we're talking about our identity, some of my journey with that. And I know for a fact that God takes the least and does things with them, um, testament to that fact. But you're like, hi, Lord, how are you going to pull this off? How are you going to get Esther from here to here? And I think with Esther, you know the key piece I see in the reversal that Esther experiences? The key piece I see is human intervention. Now, we're going to talk a lot about divine intervention in a minute, because obviously nothing happens without that. 
But what I find fascinating in Esther is it's not just about divine intervention. She's going to have a lot of times where God moves on her behalf. But there's also human intervention that's really key in her story. Let me read you what I think is one of the key verses in the entire narrative. It says in Esther 2, verse 5, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, or Esther as we know her, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. And that's the moment that the story hangs on. Because what happens if Mordecai does not stand beside the weak? What happens if Mordecai thinks, well, God just will do everything and I don't need to do anything? You know, God's just going to intervene all the time. What happens if Mordecai doesn't look at Esther and say, this is my moment to do something good in the world that's full of brokenness? What if he doesn't step up to the plate? You see, the beauty of the scriptures is this. We're showed that there is divine intervention matched with human participation. The two go hand in hand. And I want to remind you today that if you have given your life to Jesus, you have a mandate on your life to participate in his mission. And that is a mission of reversal, where the weak become strong and the hungry are filled and those who are looked down upon become elevated. And God is doing that on the earth through his people. And so there is a mandate on your life to participate in the reversal of things in this world. We don't do like, we sh absolutely we should pray. I believe in the power of prayer. Absolutely we should pray. Absolutely we should call on God for divine intervention. But not at the expense of us just sitting back and waiting for him to do it. Because you are the answer to somebody's prayer. Sometimes we pray a prayer and I feel like God's saying, well, thanks for the prayer, you're the answer. Like, you can fix it. This is something that you can go do. This is something that you can participate in. And so I wonder over the rest of this weekend if you mightn't spend some time asking the Lord, how can I participate in the reversal? Where can I go and find the weak in the story, the marginalized in the story, the downtrodden in the story that's being written in the world right now? Is that a neighbor on your street? Maybe a single mum who could really, really do with somebody to offer to babysit that child so that they could go to Tesco's on their own and get a, an hour. Do you not think that that matters in the kingdom? The kingdom is built not on big, magnificent things. The kingdom is big and magnificent, but it is built on little, tiny acts of goodness and righteousness on the earth. And you are the builders. And so what happens if, imagine, imagine for me, I'm a bit of a dreamer, imagine for me if every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ spent every day with their eyes open to see how they could participate in kingdom work in every moment. What if that's the way we entered our workspaces? What if that's the way we entered, you know, where we shop? or the school gates, what, what if that's the way we walk down our street with our eyes open saying, okay, God, where can I participate in reversal here? Where can I bring good where there's bad? Where can I bring wholeness where there's, no, where there's brokenness? Where can I bring food to the hungry? Where can I bring strength to the weak? Where can I do it? Show me how to participate in your story. Because those little acts may remain unseen, but I tell you, they are not unseen by heaven and they are not insignificant, though the world will try to tell you that they are.
Because remember, it's, a, it's the culture's upside down. And what the world calls important is not the same. It's not the same value system as what God calls important. And we need to not get trapped in that. So it's a story of reversal. Esther gets her reversal, but actually key in that is human participation. It's a Mordecai who refuses to sit back and say, well, somebody else's problem, not mine. Who sees a need and will not walk past it. And isn't this the story of scripture? Don't we see that with Moses? Don't we? A whole nation rescued. Is there divine intervention? 100%. Is there human participation? 100%. Because it's somebody who says, I don't care how big this problem is. This is not right. This is not right. This is not the way Jesus would have the world to be. This is not the way God would have the world to be. And steps into the space, yeah? And we are called to do the same. I love the fact that whenever Jesus, you know, when we get to the New Testament, the story tracks right through and Jesus has got his disciples and it, they've got all these people who've been listening and they're hungry and the disciples are like, oh, it's not our problem. They didn't pack lunch. It's not our problem. And what does Jesus say? You feed them. And is Jesus going to participate in that act? Absolutely. They can't do it without him. But is he calling them to participate also? Absolutely. It's a combination of the two. And so we don't abdicate our role in the story of reversal. We step into our role in the story of reversal. So where is God calling you to step up into the story of reversal right where you're placed? Esther's rise, her reversal, hangs on, it hangs on human participation. But I want to think for a moment about Mordecai's rise too. Because actually Mordecai is in a position in this story where he is the weak and there are strong forces opposed to him. And actually, if you look at Mordecai, as you read the story, you think, Mordecai, you're not getting out of this alive. Like, you are not getting out of this alive. We've, we've already talked about some of the passages, but let me remind you of some of the, the weapons that were being formed against him. Remember Haman, heinous Haman, really powerful, king's right-hand man, all the power to change laws and everything. The guy's got it all going for him, and this is what it says in, he in Esther 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, and instead Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people. He looked for a way to destroy them all. And when you've got powerful forces waging war against you, how, what hope is there? And some of you women, if you're honest in this room today, you have very, very, very big forces opposed to you. You have very big, insurmountable challenges, and you're like, there is no way through this. There is no way through this. Mordecai understands, because as if that wasn't bad enough, it goes on to say in Esther 5, verse 14, we talked about this last night too, Haman's wife, Suresh, and all his friends said to Haman, have a pole set up, reaching to the height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. And this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Mordecai doesn't even realize it. But in the morning he dies. He goes to bed that night and he has no clue the weapons that are being waged against him. He knows about the, the thing with the Jews. He doesn't know about the, the, the uh, in, intensely personal attack that's coming his way. Personal attacks are always a bit of a shock, huh? That morning, Mordecai dies. That morning, and you're like, this is not going to end well. 
But remember, this story of reversal is not just about human participation. This is about divine intervention. Let's read what happens next. We alluded to it last night, but I, this is my favorite part of the story. Esther 6. That night, so the next morning, Mordecai's going to die. That night, that night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana, what a name, Bigthana, and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway he had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai, right? So in walks Haman at that very moment to suggest that the king should kill Mordecai. To suggest about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. And his attendants answered, Haman's standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. Perfect timing, huh? When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Remember last night? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king for the man the king delights to honor. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble prince, princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe, get the horse. Do just as you have suggested for Mordecai. The G. He sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. And so Haman got the robe, the horse, robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the streets, proclaiming this is what is done for the one that the king delights to honor. I want to track right through. Track right, let's track this rise right through. In Esther 7, verse 8, it says this, Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in this house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, and then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of fifty cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, Impale him on it. And so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. Guys, you know the beauty of this? The beauty of this is, is God's incredible timing. Like, does God not have a sense of timing? And I am sure there were times where Mordecai is like, if there's some divine intervention coming, Lord, you know, with this attack on the Jews, it would be great if it came now. And sometimes God's timing is so frustrating, but he is never late. And the reality is, between where Mordecai was and where Mordecai needed to be, there was a very wide chasm, but God was in the space in between. And he would walk Mordecai into the future that he had ordained for him, and nothing would prevent him from it. And Mordecai eventually rises to second in the kingdom where Haman was. I don't know what your story is, but I know for me that there have been times in my life where there has been a massive, massive gap between where I am and where I need to be. And I could tell, I was thinking this morning, what story did I tell, Lord? Because there are so many times where I have had divine intervention. I love what William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, said when somebody suggested that there were just coincidences, you know, and he said, yes, coincidences, coincidences don't happen when I don't pray. <laughs> I got a guy. He's not wrong, because it's 
not coincidence, it's divine intervention, you know, but you need eyes to see it in your story, don't you? You need eyes to see. And so I want to tell you a story, which is, you know, just a little part of my story that looks like a series of coincidences for those who don't have eyes to see. But I believe in the, in the power of divine intervention. And this is a, this is a, this is a really new story. Um, it just happened over probably the last four or five years in my life. I, I was in a position uh, in, in a job I was in. I'd been there for a very long time and I had very, very many happy memories there. And I'm so, so grateful for that space that I was in. But the reality is I, I was growing as all good Christians should. I was growing and the space at the same time was shrinking. And that was no one's fault. That was just the nature of the space that I was in. And so it led me to a place in my, uh, in my job where I felt incredibly suffocated. And it was getting worse and worse and harder and harder. And I was waiting for the Lord to intervene because the Lord had given me a lot of promises about my life and where I would end up and what I would do and what he was calling me to in the kingdom. But I'm going to be honest with you, I couldn't see a way. I'm like, Lord, I hear you. But that's not possible. And here are all of the reasons why that's not possible. There was no way. So when I say to you there was no way for God to give me what he had promised me, I mean it. There was zero way for that to happen. And instead of those opportunities in that space opening, it was closing and closing and closing around me. And I was having a lot of conversations with God at that time. God and I have a very honest relationship. I've been walking with him for 37 years. He knows me. I know him. We have a very honest relationship. And so I was having a lot of discussions with him around that time. During that time, I went to preach at a, at a youth conference. And after the youth conference, I sat down. This is like knock-on effect. It's all the dominoes, okay? After the youth conference, I sat down, and the guy leading the youth conference got up, and he just said, I feel in this room tonight that God wants to make a trade. And he said, you know the way sometimes you have a wee lunchbox, and you don't like what your mum gave you for break, but you like what your mates got, and you do a trade? You say, well, we trade. I feel like the Lord wants to trade some things with you tonight. So I just want you to spend some time and think about what the Lord might trade. So I'm sitting in the front row thinking, I don't know what you want to trade, Lord. I mean... What, what could that be? And just into my spirit, the Lord spoke this little word. He said, I want you to trade comfort for adventure. Now, if you know me, I am a homebird in every sense of the word. My favorite place is my home. If I didn't have to leave my home ever again, I would, I would, I'm okay with lockdown. Lockdown is good with me because I am a homebird. I'm like, you want me to trade comfort for adventure? <laughs> adventure? All right. But I was in the habit of surrendering. I'd done it my whole life long. I was like, all right, Lord, comfort for adventure. Now, when I say I don't go anywhere, I don't go anywhere, ever. I don't understand why people want to go on holiday. It makes no sense to me. It's like, why would you leave your home? Your home is a beautiful place. And I know people find that bizarre, but it's just part of the oddity of my personality. I don't enjoy holidays. I just want to be at home. So I'm like, oh, all right. Trade comfort for adventure, here we go. So that happened. A while after that, like several months after that, a friend of mine said to me really randomly one day, coincidentally one day, she said, Charlotte, remember that time you said that you would trade comfort for adventure? Don't forget it. That very night, I got a phone call from a woman who lives in England. Now, your country is a beautiful country. It's not my home, though, right? And this woman from England, she phones me completely out of the blue, and she says, Charlotte, will you come and preach in England? <laughs> um, and straight in my mind, there was a Charlotte, don't forget you promised you would trade comfort for adventure. I was like, all right. Yes, I, I would, that would be an honor. 
that would be an honour. So honestly, I cannot explain to you the anxiety that filled my heart at the thought of having to go to England, beautiful as it is, to preach at this conference with people I did not know. I was, it was all kinds of difficult. So I show up at this conference, right? It was a train wreck from start to finish. I mean, everything that could go wrong, did go wrong. People didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing. No, listen, Di, you're laughing. This conference is nothing like that. You see little tiny things that have gone wrong and you think that everybody else, rea nobody realizes this is beautiful. This conference I was at, train wreck Di. It was a tr everything that could, nobody knew what was happening. There were, ch that it was honestly, I cannot, and I was like, Lord, why am I here? This is, this is not an easy space to be in. And so, the, but then all of a sudden, this guy got up, and he was called Matt too, funny enough, to lead worship. This guy called Matt got up to lead worship, and something in the room shifted, and it changed, and it was so beautiful. And he was from England, and he got up and led worship. I got up and preached. It was, it was okay. I, I mean, I wasn't, I'm going to be honest, guys, it wasn't great. I didn't do a very good job. But there we go. I'm like, Lord, I don't know why you brought me here. I just did an awful job. None of this makes any sense, but here we are. So I got up and did my preach. Afterwards, Matt comes to me, and I start chatting to this guy called Matt. And you know sometimes there's like an instant connection with people. He felt like my brother. Do you know what I mean? And we had this big, long chat, and I'm like... I think that there's something here. God's doing something here. Maybe, maybe the whole reason I've come here is to meet this guy called Matt because I never would have met him otherwise. So it was fine. Matt went back to his home in England. I went home to Northern Ireland. We kept in touch via social media. I met his lovely wife. I got to know his family. And there was this lovely connection growing. And he cheered me on relentlessly. And he kept reminding me about the promises of God in my life. That's fine. But see, at home, my space is shrinking even further. And I'm like, Lord, the promises. How did I get to these promises? And there was one week where it was getting really, really bad, extremely difficult circumstances. And my husband randomly, coincidentally, said to me, Charlotte, I think you need to speak to Matt. I'm like, what can Matt do for me? He lives in England. He's not like that, that makes. He says, I don't know. I just feel like you need to speak to Matt. And I says, well, if I need to meet, speak to Matt, the Lord may bring Matt to me, because I'm not. He's going to think I'm a right nut job phoning him. I don't even know what I'm phoning him to ask. So the Lord may bring Matt to me. Well, the next day I had to go to a conference, I, just as a delegate, in a little town, a couple of miles away from my town called Lurgan. Nothing happens in Lurgan. Lurgan is the lowest point on earth. If there was hell on earth, that would be Lurgan, right? <laughs> I have zero desire to go to Lurgan. There's a bit of rivalry between Portadown and Lurgan. It's maybe coming out in this moment. I'm sure Jesus really loves Lurgan. It, it's, oh, it's worse. Anyway, so this conference is in Lurgan. I'm like, what? I want to go to a conference in Lurgan. I was feeling bad. I was unhappy. I you know, had that weird conversation with my husband about talking to Matt. I didn't want to go to no conference. But anyway, somebody had bought me the ticket coincidentally. I didn't buy it. Somebody had coincidentally bought me this ticket for this conference in Lurgan. I'm getting up, getting dressed to go to this conference I don't want to go to. And I feel the Lord say this. Now, you're going to think I'm really nuts now at this point of the story. I feel the Lord say to me, don't wear that shirt, wear the shirt with the glasses on it. Now, I know that sounds nuts. I thought it was nuts at the time, but I thought to myself, well, if I put the shirt, so I had this shirt with glasses all over it. I mean, it was a very strange purchase. But I thought, nobody's gonna know I'm nuts. I'll just put the shirt on anyway, and even if I'm wrong, sure, no harm done. So I put on this shirt with glasses, off I go, sullen as you like, really bad attitude, march into this conference in Lurgan, and as I, as I enter the room, the first session, this woman walks up to me and she said, I saw your shirt, and I was like, oh, here we go. 
And she said, I saw your shirt with the glasses on it. And I just believe the Lord would say to you that he's about to give you clarity in an area of your life where you've been very confused. And I was like, well, goodness knows I need that right now because I cannot see a way. I can't see how this is going to end well. That's fine. Conference went on. I mean, everything was fine. I didn't have any big drama moments. Went for lunch. There was about 300 delegates, so they had to split them across two rooms, okay? So I'm sitting in the upper hall in the town hall in Lurgan, you know, close, as close to hell as a person can get on earth, in the, in the town hall in Lurgan. I'm sitting eating my sandwich in Lurgan. And I look across the room, and who's at the other side of the room? Matt! in Lurgan and I was like oh goodness me Lord what are you doing I was like is it him I can't be him what would he be doing in Lurgan and next thing up he gets and he Charlotte a terrible accent sorry <laughs> Charlotte and I'm like Matt what are you doing in Lurgan he's like well coincidentally somebody bought me a ticket for this conference I don't know why I'm here either so his mate had bought him a ticket for this conference right my mate had bought me for a ticket. Here we were having this conversation. My husband had said, I think you need to speak to Matt. I would said, well, the Lord needs to bring Matt. Now we're in Lurgan having this conversation with Matt. And Matt says, Charlotte, here, let me introduce you to my friend who bought me the ticket. And he calls this white-haired guy from the back of the room over. And he says, Charlotte, this is Owen. Right, now, Owen also has an English accent. I've never met Owen before. But he goes on to tell me that Owen actually works in Belfast now. He moved over here. And, he, and I was like, well, of course he moved to God's own country. Well, I mean, why wouldn't he? So he's working in this church. And Owen looked at me and he said this. He said, Charlotte, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I've just met you. But do you believe in prophecy? I said, I do. He said, well, let me say this to you. You carry fire on your life. Now, I started to giggle. It was terribly rude. I'm so sorry. But the reason that I started to giggle was because my friends had started calling me the fire starter because everywhere that I went somebody gave me a prophecy about how I carried fire in my life so at this point I'm like oh well of course this is hilarious all right Lord I'm listening because then I knew he was legit because he said the thing that God had been saying all this time so I trusted him then in this moment he said Charlotte you've got fire in your life and I just want to say the Lord said to you he's going to become more intentional about where he places that fire in this season of your life what he and I did not know in that moment was a year later I would go to preach in his church and a week after that, he would invite me to come on staff of that church. And all of a sudden, everything that God had promised me, that there was zero way that I could access in my context, all of a sudden, this space just opened like this. And I moved into a role that fulfilled and more everything the Lord had promised me, that there was no way I could get to. And you know what? There's about 400 other steps in that story that I don't have time to tell you. But it was literally, you, I mean, you couldn't write it, guys. Because it's not about coincidence, it's about divine intervention. And I know for some of you that there is a, and, and for some of you, your situation is much deeper or darker than the one that I've just described. But you're looking at it thinking, there is no way to the other side. But there is a way to the other side because God's in the middle between where you are and where you need to be, making a way for you. And so Mordecai, who at the start is going to die, ends up second in the kingdom. And at the end of his story, we all cheer because the villain dies and the hero reigns supreme. And we're all, I know, yeah, we're like, yeah, this is the way it should be. And just when we're cheering, Jesus interrupts the story. 
and he flips the script again. Because you see, in the English, we miss some things that we can see. If we remember yesterday, I explained we can look at the Greek right the way through. If we look at a Greek translation of the Old Testament, we can carry that right the way through. Hidden in the Greek, there are some keys to a one coming, a future flipping of the script. Let me read to you some of the words that are so important. You're going to find them in Esther 7, if you want to turn there. Because in Esther 7, verse, uh, let's go to verse 9. Just when Haman is about to be uh, executed, when the villain is about to die and the hero is about to go free, it says this. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king, and the king said, Impale him on it. There are two very important Greek words in the Greek translation. The first one I want you to see is the word pole. So the word there for pole is this word, zulon in the Greek. Okay? So that, that's translated there as pole. But often in the Bible it's also wood. It's translated wood and some, there's some other variations as well. So zulon is the word for pole or wood here. Okay. Then the second word I want you to notice is when it says, the king makes a statement. He says, okay, we've got the zulon. We've got the, the mode of execution here. I want you to impale him on it. And the word that you're going to see for impale there in the Greek is staru. So it's translated here as impale. But actually in other places in scripture it's translated differently. Okay? But it's the word impale. Now I want to show you where you find those very same words in the New Testament. If you want, you can turn with me to Acts. Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, we're going to read verse 30. Where Peter and the other apostles applied, We must obey God rather than human beings. And then it says in Acts 5 verse 30, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a zulon. By hanging him on a zulon. I want to read to you another passage of scripture that's really important for us. You're going to find it in Luke 23. And as Jesus moves towards his death, I want to read to you this account in Luke 23. It says, Luke 23, 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion, and I have examined him, and I have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has heard, for he sent him back. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death, a bit like Mordecai. He's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Barabbas is guilty. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him. Crucify him. Staru. Crucify him. Crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. 
And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. And in this moment, we see that Jesus is the reversal of the script of Esther. Because actually in Esther, the innocent go free and the guilty are punished. But there is one coming in whom there is no guile and no sin. And yet Corinthians will tell us that he who knew no sin will become sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. In Esther, the guilty are punished and the innocent go free. Jesus enters the story as the innocent. And he goes punished so that we, the guilty, go free. And ultimately, this is the great reversal of scripture. This is the great reversal. I, I don't know your life, but I do know Jesus. And I know that he willingly laid down his life for you. And if he would willingly lay down his life for you, what good thing will he withhold from those who love him? What good thing? What good thing? He is the ultimate reversal. And I know that many of you in this room have decided to give your life to Jesus already, and I'm so, so delighted about that. I think there's probably some of you in this room who maybe wandered from that decision because of pain or confusion or distraction or a myriad of other things. And I just want to remind you again of who it is that you decided to follow. He's the one that willingly, though he is innocent, takes the place of the guilty so that you could go free. And he becomes sin so that you can become righteousness. And I just want to remind you again, he deserves, he deserves your devotion. He deserves your devotion. Even when he takes you down roads that you don't understand and you don't really like, and even when there's brokenness and pain, there is nobody who loves you more than Jesus. He deserves your devotion. And so for some of us today, I wonder, is God asking us to re-surrender our lives again at his feet and say, no matter what comes, you have my heart and I will follow you with every breath that I have until my dying day because you deserve my devotion because you willingly laid down your life for me, the guilty, so that I could go free. And maybe some of you in this room have never, ever given your life to Jesus. Can I just say to you, there is no safer hands in which to place your life. There is no safer hands in which to place your life. And I want you to know that Jesus invites you today to follow him to lay down your vision of the world, to lay down culture's vision of the world and to participate in his vision of the world. To see the, the, the script flipped and the great reversal come and all the broken pieces put back together. And today you can do that. And if you need some help with that, I don't want you to leave this space without doing that. You come chat to me, Priscilla, any of the team here, the person who brought you, have a chat about how that you can have Jesus for your own. Don't leave this place without doing that. I wonder if we can maybe uh, close our eyes. Matt and the team are going to come. Thank you for listening so well. It's so warm in here. You have done great not to fall asleep on me. I wonder if you could maybe close your eyes.
And maybe in this moment, you could pray your own, your own private prayer of, of devotion. And actually, I, I would love, as you do that, to pray a prayer over you. So I'm going to give you a moment. I'm going to just give you a wee minute to pray your own private prayer of devotion. If everybody can just keep their eyes closed in this moment to grant privacy to everyone else. If today, no matter how long you follow Jesus, like me, you are saying, Jesus, I give you my heart all over again. And whatever this next season brings, I just want you to know that I'm here and I'm ready to follow you. And if that's something that you feel stirring in your heart right now, you just want to surrender your life all over again. And it doesn't mean that you've backslidden or you've walked away or anything. Maybe just like me, you're just like, I just want to give it all to him all over again. I'm just going to invite you to stand to your feet if that's you. And I'm going to pray over you a sealing prayer of your surrender. of these beautiful women standing right now and I know that you know what it costs for them to surrender their lives again to you and I know that you see that sacrifice as a really beautiful thing and I pray that you would seal them oh God that you would seal their surrender I pray you would put into them so much fortitude that no matter what comes, I pray you would fix their eyes on you, the author and the finisher of their faith. I pray that as they run, they would not be distracted, oh God, that the, the weapons that are formed against them would not prosper. I pray that instead these women would have grit and, and, and that fortitude and that courage of conviction. And I pray that as difficult seasons come, Lord, there would be a, a sense for them that they have got your hand in theirs, that they would be confident in the fact that you are with them. I pray, Father, as they follow you, many doors of service would open to them in the days ahead. I pray that opportunities to put your world back together would present themselves over and over and over again. I pray that you would give them a fresh clarity as they move. I pray they would hear your voice more clearly than they've ever heard your voice before. I pray they would know your kindness and your generosity. I pray they would see your divine intervention at every turn, that there would be so many moments that they would look back and say, only God could have done that. I pray that you would open doors that the enemy has sealed shut, that you would enter them into new seasons that they believe were past them. I, I think that there's somebody here and you think that you've missed the boat that there was something that came up in your life one time before and it's like you didn't quite get there in time you missed the boat and I think the Lord's saying to somebody you haven't missed the boat 
that it's coming back around, that there's an opportunity that's coming back around and God's going to redeem that moment that you feel like you missed it and God's going to redeem that for you and give that back to you. So I pray, Father, that there would be many things that we feel, oh, we've missed that opportunity, that opportunity's gone, that will reveal themselves again in this day and in this generation and in this moment in their lives. Lord, I pray a blessing on these women. I pray your abundant blessing, whether standing or seated. I pray your abundant blessing on every single one of them, that they would know you, that they would see you, and that they would operate and participate in your kingdom come and your will be done on heaven as it is on earth. I'm going to invite you all just to join us and stand in these moments as Matt leads us.